by no means had enough money to retire at 40 something years old. And so I had to start over. I was scared shitless. Hopefully I can say that. And so I thought, you know what? It's easier to start another business. Hey there. Welcome to the Deep Dive Lab. Each episode, we'll sit down with experts and thought leaders to get a glimpse into their world. We'll take you on a journey behind the scenes to explore all the different industries from tech to business, healthcare, and design. I'm your host, Jacintha Kurniawan. We have Glenn with 30 years of experience. He's a sales guru. He's spent countless hours in the field on the phone with customers, mentoring salespeople. He's a co-founder, vice president, and general manager of Gap Wireless, a leading distributor for wireless equipment markets. He's also the mastermind behind several successful companies like Fave Technologies. He's a speaker, author of his book, Never Sit in the Lobby, where he shares sales strategy, consumerism, and his secret sauce of emotional motivation, which I'm sure we'll go into today. He hikes, he skis, he even takes a swing at the quirky sport of pickleball. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn, for joining me for today. Thanks, Tristan. That's definitely a good intro. Well done. Never heard of pickleball before until I came you, here. Yeah, it's very popular. It's the most mm-hmm. fastest growing sport in the world, actually. There you go. Is it like yeah. harder than tennis? No, it's much easier. Yeah, you can learn it in one session. Like you could be proficient at the end of one evening of playing it with some friends that teach you how. Of course, you got to figure out the scoring and all that. Mm -hmm. And of course, it takes a while to get good, but it takes no time to get capable. You can play with people after an hour of learning it and it's a really fast learn, but to get really good, of course, like everything, it takes takes time and patience. (laughs) That's really the story of your whole book and life, really. Patience and hard work. There's a lot of rabbit holes to go into today. I would love to start with your book, but actually more on your story first. Sure. So I know you've had two successful exits of your company. You're an expert in sales, but you started off as a technical sales rep in your 20s. And I remember in our last chat, you were like, I want to have a business before I'm 30. What made you start building a company? Yeah. And the very first part of the story, just to make sure that I'm complete, right, is that my first job out of college was Mm -hmm. I was a civil servant for the federal government. And yeah, I work for Environment Canada, which now has a fancier name and has global warming in the title. But basically, it's (laughs) Environment Canada. They do the weather weather prediction for for Canada and they feed Mm. all the data to the weather stations and to the TV and stuff. And they give them the data that they use to predict the weather. And Mm. and I worked there for three years and my boss told me here in the wrong business, buddy, you need to go into sales. And so I, I took his advice and I went into, I went into sales. And the, the funny part about that story is that I placed a, I, what do you call it? I did a resume, sorry. And I, I sent the resume off to only one company and I got the interview mm. and I went for it and I thought it went well. And later that day I called the guy and I said, Hey, did I get the job? Right. And I really didn't know any better. And this will come out sounding a little strange, but he's no, I'm still interviewing candidates. I'm like, Oh, okay. So the next morning I called him back and I said, all right, 
what about now? Do I get the job? And he's <laughs> no. And then by that point, he stopped p- taking the call directly. And the lady that answered the phone was like, oh, I'm sorry, he's in a meeting. Oh, tell him Glenn called. I'm just curious if he hired the position yet. Yeah. So then a couple of weeks later, they uh, he calls me back and uh, he says, you know what? We're sending you to Montreal for a second interview with with my partners at, in our office in Montreal. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I work for the federal government and I was driving the shittiest car that existed in Canada at the time. This was quite a while ago. And I think it was like a Chevy Chevette, I think was the name of it. It was this little mm. crunched down little Chevy car, had crank windows, no air conditioning, no radio. It was government mm. green, the 80, 1980s government green. And so I flew to Montreal and one of the owners picked me up and he we walk out to the parking lot and he's driving a BMW 750. And I'm mm. like, oh, wow. I really like the idea of this sales game. And we pulled into his office in Quebec and the two there were two other partners in Quebec and they all had matching BMW 750s and the mm. license plates were like one digit apart. And I thought, oh, I'm definitely getting a job in sales. And I so <laughs> I was so enamored with their cars. And the, sorry, it's, I know it's a long story, but long story short, they did hire me. And after a few weeks, the guy in Toronto said to me, he goes, you weren't my candidate that I was going to pick. And he Mm. says, you were like, you weren't really even on the list, but ultimately I decided to hire you. And I'm like, what made you hire me? And he goes, you're the only guy that followed up twice a day for 10 days. And Um. and I was just basically excited and greedy for the job, as I like to say. And, Mm. and he said, look, if you're willing to follow up that many times to get the job, I'm sure you'll follow up enough times with the customers to keep the job. Right. And yeah. And so five years after working for them, I approached them with an idea for a business around one of the technology areas that they were servicing in the market, and they were a very broad technology. They sold all kinds of things to different kinds of tech markets in Canada. And I said, look, I think this is going to be a good market. I'd like to focus on it, spin off a division. I'd like to own a piece of it, but you guys could own a piece of it. And I could be partners with you like you're partners with each other in this firm, right? And the president said, oh, that's never going to work. And you can show me your plan, but I think you'd be better just to stick with us. And so the next day I resigned. Yeah. And I, I, that was back. I, that was back when I married, I was married to this girl named Kelly and I am not married to her anymore. But the, at the time I went home and we'd only been married six days. And I said, Oh, honey, I quit my job and I'm going into business for myself. And of course that newfangled technology never went anywhere. It was the cell phone. And so who, mm. whoever, who needs a cell phone? Right. And this was 1991 when I did it. Right. And it wasn't like they didn't believe in the technology. That's just a joke that I always tell. Right. But of course, the whole business was built around this, the cell phone and the burgeoning market, all the companies in Canada that were, were that were developing and the new cell phone companies and et cetera. And, but for some reason, I have a Greek background and my parents, they sold, they quit their jobs and they went in to try different businesses and stuff. And my grandfather was a candy maker in Toronto. Oh, and nice. uh, yeah, and so he owned a candy shop in downtown Toronto and uh, he was a, a business owner and what have you. And I just had this burning thing. Oh, I want to be an entrepreneur by the time mm. I'm 30. But I don't even think the word entrepreneur existed back then, <laughs> but it's very common now, right? And so mm-hmm. I quit and I started the business and, and I ran it for 15 years and the uh, and I sold it to a public company. And ultimately, sometimes public companies, they work in mysterious ways. And this one, to make a long story short, they shut down that business unit. And mm. and ultimately, that company ended up, fa- the company that bought my company ended up failing. And so oh. a lot of the riches that I thought I'd had, like I became a multimillionaire mm. in shares on paper, right? I got mm. some money up front, but a lot of it was shares. And the company mm. ended up, the shares basically became worthless. 
And so I by no means had enough money to retire at 40 something years old. And, and so I had to start over. And the only resume I'd ever created was the one to get my first job in sales, right? And so to me, I was scared shitless. Hopefully I can say that. And, uh, and so I thought, you know what? It's easier to start another business. And I learned a lot of mistakes in my first company, Wave. So I'm going to create another one. And this time I'm going to do everything the way I want to do it. And I, not to say that I'm going to do it right, but I'm going to do it the way I feel is right in a lot of areas that I thought we missed the mark. And so I started a new company, which, and as the story goes, I started with the two letters of my name, GP. And then I added uh. a vowel. I added a vowel, A, to get gap. And created Gap Wireless. And oh. yeah, and that was the same year that the Gap Clothing Company introduced the Gap Wireless bra. And so oh, nice. I ended up in I ended up in tr- trademark tribunal court fighting for the name from the Gap oh, Clothing Company, no. which I ended up winning. And and that's why we got to keep our name. And but then I ran that company for 15 years, Gap Wireless. Mm. I still work here, but I sold that to a private equity company in the U.S. This time it was for 100% cash and uh, no more shares this time. And uh, yeah, lesson learned. And I spent a lot of time looking at this part of the company, grain management. The private equity is very known and well-respected company. And uh, and so I felt really confident about that. And I agreed Mm -hmm. to stay on with them for a few years. But our name is changing in a couple of weeks to the company that bought us, NWS, Mm -hmm. which used to stand for Network Wireless Solutions. But we're removing the, because telecom and wireless is all blending into one now, we're not using the word wireless so much. So Gap Wireless is becoming NWS Canada. And right. Yeah. And so we'll all be one entity in North America in a couple of weeks. So mm-hmm. that's the quick version of how I got from college to the government, here. to my sales job, to two companies, to here. Right. Yeah. How... Or like, when do you know when to sell? Because I think that's usually the hardest part, right? You've built your baby for 15 years and now you're out there to sell. How do you know when to sell? Most companies, once you get to a certain size, most companies sell fairly predictably for anywhere from five to some multiple of the EBITDA. And so you can basically, if you're a smaller business, you have to be have a fair bit of EBITDA to get above the five, six multiple, like more than $10 million of EBITDA, not of sales, but of, mm-hmm. and EBITDA is not profit, but basically it's close to the profit line, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. And, but the common way the businesses are sold typically is X times EBITDA right? Some online business are done by X times revenue or multiples of their recurring revenue type or their customers and things like that. But uh, my business is selling hardware. It's a a buy and sell business and it sells based on the profit. And so Mm -hmm. you basically sell it when five, six times the profit is enough that make you happy. And (laughs) the, the, yeah. And you also have to, sometimes you go through cycles in the business where you come out of a cycle into a cycle and you're you can feel that you're riding a wave of a peak and it's okay. I'm going to have to wait to the next trough and into the next peak because they mm. take an average of your EBITDA over the last few years. Mm. And so essentially what happened with us was that we had a really complicated time in 2019. And so we had to, and we had to restructure parts of the business, which I'm happy to talk about at any point, but Essentially, we went from 80 people to 29 people in one day. Whoa. And it was the best, it was the hardest thing I ever did in my life, hardest decision I ever made, hardest function, hardest job I ever did was to do that. And it was the smartest and best thing I ever did. 
and mm. we made more money than we'd ever made the next year. Everyone that was let go got a job. Nobody mm. was left out in the cold and everyone landed on their feet and the company was allowed to thrive the way it should. And then we went on to have great years and we sold it for record numbers, like in our opinion, in 2022. Hey. And, but we need, you need to stack those good years together because they're going to take an average, right? And uh, that's typically, so you can't just you typically have one good year and then, and the last ones were crappy and expect that they're going to pay you a top dollar for that, right? Yeah. Can I yeah. like drill into that what, yeah. we, from 80 to 20? 29. Like a, yeah. 29. There you go. 30, right? Basically. So like yeah. you've cut off a lot of people. Yeah. There's a lot of leaders out there who say we will do our best to never lay off people, all these things, blah, blah. But it was really helpful for you. Could you share why yeah. in this instance? Sure. And my business partner at the afterwards, he reflected back and he said, I never would have had the guts to do what you like. I he once I told him and he agreed. Then of mm. course he was party to it. But he said I never mm. would have had the guts to think that up or to do it or whatever. Thank you for doing it, and he mm. thanked me for having the and essentially the we had and there's parts I talk about this some of these little factors I call them in my book right where I call it the reverse Midas touch. So where somebody mm. starts a business and they get really good at it right and all of a sudden they feel that because they're really good at whatever, it could be flipping houses, it doesn't really matter, any kind of a business that as a matter, just as a matter of course, because they were successful in the first business, then they're entitled to carte blanche success in all businesses that they start. And mm. what ends up happening is that they'll be running a business, their heart and soul goes into it, 90, 100% of their time and effort is into it. And then they'll start something which only gets 3% of their time. But they're expecting because they're a nice guy and they did so great in their first business that the second business will thrive. And it could very well. You might be lucky. and But typically, that's not what happens. What ends up happening is you divide your time. And then what ends up happening is you use profits from very profitable divisions to prop up non-profitable divisions. And because you're all right in the thick of it, sometimes you're too blind to see that maybe what you're doing is leading your own self down the garden path. And we did that in several areas. So we're selling wireless equipment that's installed up on the towers. And you drive by a cell site all over the city, right? You see all that stuff on the towers. That's what we sell. That's our business, mm. right? Same thing at the stadium at Scotiabank or BMO. When you're in, in those stadiums in Toronto and you look up, you see all those antennas. That's We sold those antennas. And right. But we also started a company to climb towers and install the antennas. And mm. climbing a tower with all that safety and insurance and fall arrest training and all that stuff is quite different than selling the antenna that the guy who climbs the tower puts in. And mm -hmm. so that was one of the areas. And another area was that around 2015 or 2016 or so, drones became very popular, right? Like the DGI drone and people see them all the time now and everyone yeah. takes fancy shots with them. And my myself and my business partner, we were just geeked right out on drones and we just loved them so much. And we yeah. thought, you know what? They're going to start using drones to inspect towers, which they do. We could get into it. We could start selling the drones to all of our customers. So it was seemed smart. And, mm. and we ended up signing up the top brand for in Canada of, of these drones. But, but the thing was, is that the drones were just like super popular and lots of companies were selling them, not just in our business. And so we had all these competitors and it was a low barrier to entry. They just signed up with this vendor and everybody was flogging them. And the vendor was changing 
the technology so fast that we would order, a, for instance, like a container load of drones from China. Mm. And before mm. the boat even landed, there was a new generation drone being introduced by the right. vendor. And we had all these old ones. We're like, no, we want the next one. And they're like, no, you can't. <laughs> bought and paid for. And so it was really tough. And, and then there were some other people that we allowed to to stay on in the business that were not properly, they were not what we call the right person in the right seat, right? And so I went through and I said, look, this service division, we got to get out of it. The drone division, we got to get out of it. And then there's some people that we need to look at them being the right person in the right seat. And so in one day, we basically called a firm in Canada. We agreed to sell them our service division, which it wasn't give, but it was close to give them the business. But everyone got a job, all the goods and assets were taken, everything and fair market value for all that. And everybody was moved safely and the business just continued to thrive. Customers were serviced, boom. And then mm. the drone division, we sold it to an American company and we made a little bit of money off that. And they took all the people that were selling the drone stuff. And then there were a few other people that weren't the right fit and we let them go. And mm. before we knew it, we were back down to 29 people. And uh, yeah, and it was all done in the in, in the October of 2019, and wow. which was six months before the pandemic. Did you start scaling up again since then? or So we're only at 41 people in this division, but the company that bought me bought a company in Quebec and they have 30 people. So I now mm. have 70 people working for me, but the 30 were not mine. Like it was a company they bought. Right. And we're now yeah. integrating them into our business. So we've only grown from 29 to 41 since then. Yeah. And how differently do you hire now as compared to before? Yeah. So the crappiest thing I ever did in my life was my hiring skills or whatever I could say it that way. <laughs> and there's a lot of stories in my book about my bad hires mm. and they're bad. And they're bad. Mm. Like they're not bad stories. They're really funny. And they're like, you've <laughs> got to be kidding me. That's a fake story. And I'm like, nope, a fake story. Ooh, can you share one? Sure. I hired this one guy and I gave him one of my big customers in down in the Western, Southwestern Ontario. And mm -hmm. I was really proud of this customer. I'd done a lot of work bringing them and they were, they loved me. And, and one day I got a phone call and it was from the lady in the, the front lobby who I knew for years and years. And I have all these stories in the book about talking to the people in the lobby and never sit in the lobby is the title of the book. <laughs> and, and she says, you have to come down here right now. And something told me like I needed to get there right away. And so I just dropped mm -hmm. everything, got in the car. It was a 40 minute drive, drove out there and uh, came into the lobby and she had this stern look on her face. I thought, Jesus, what the duck is wrong here. And so she said, oh, come with me. And she took me around the, this fake wall behind her desk. And there was a couple of offices there. And one of them was a security office, right? And she took me into the security oh. office and it was her. And it was another receptionist lady that worked the other shift of the day. And it was mm -hmm. the security guy for the business, right? Right. And we sat us down and they said, if you ever allow that I won't even say his name, but I made up a name in the book. I can't remember what name I gave the guy. <laughs> Whatever, Jack. If you let Jack ever back in our building again, we're gonna call the we're gonna call the police, and we're never gonna <gasps> do business with you again. And I'm like, what? Oh. What happened? And so th this is a crazy story. And so basically, what ended up happening, he ended up being like a pervert. And so, <laughs> oh my god, he, he basically said to the lady, he said. Oh, listen, I can't remember her name. Becky, I think it was. Becky, I just graduated in this class in advanced lovemaking. And I wondered oh, if, wow. you'd want, if you'd like to take some <laughs> practice with me or something like that, right? 
<clears throat> yeah. Oh, and he was no. hitting on the other one as well, but really sleazy. And so I said, Oh my God. I was like flabbergasted. I just never, right? It just, and of course, the blood, my blood was boiling. I wanted to instantly transport back to the office so I could handle him or whatever. And, uh, of course. And so I got back in my car and I'm heading back towards the 401 to drive home from, which was, I knew it was going to be a 40 minute drive, but I'm thinking to myself, Holy shit. It's not only, this is not only my best customer here, but my second best customer is also here. And I said, oh. I better phone them. And so I phoned them and I said, oh, I was just calling because this blah, 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 this guy or whatever. And she said, oh, mm. you, can come, you should come by. And I'm like, oh, no. And oh. she says, we were getting ready to call the police on that guy. Oh, and um, goodness. Yeah. And it turned out there was another one. There were three customers in total in that area. He was hitting on all of them in a really slimy kind of way. Yeah. And he was all in all, though, he was a good salesman, though. He was selling, he was getting orders and things like that. And at that first glance, he wouldn't have guessed. And I raced back to Mississauga and I just barged in the office door and I'm like, you're so fucking fired. Oh my God. (laughs) How... Yeah, how could you have foreseen that though? You on well, so how we hire now is we follow a system called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's a trademark mm. business process that mm. we adopted in 2019 prior to the restructuring. And it mm-hmm. was and essentially one of their the tenant ten, ten, uh, testaments of the business of the process is having the right people in the right seats, right? Mm. And the core values of your business. And so essentially mm-hmm. They teach you in this system as you roll it out in your company to set up the structure of your business first and mm. then put the right people in the right seats. And yeah. often what companies do is the, I call this thing called the VP in the room scenario where there's a bunch of guys sitting together and they're trying to decide who's going to be the leadership of the company. And it's okay, you're a VP and you could be mm. a VP and you're a VP and oh, wait a minute, Sally's coming in. Oh, Sally, you're a VP too. Right? right. And she's right, VP right. at what? And she, they're like, human resources. And meanwhile, like no education, no, no experience. Mm. And it's just because they're present. They just basically f- create jobs for people that are sitting around them rather mm. than saying for my business, I need a director of sales. I need a director of finance, director of operations. Mm-hmm. I do need this kind of marketing or that, what have you. I'm going to outsource my IT. So I don't need mm-hmm. that. And once mm-hmm. you've set that structure of the business, you have to like blinder, put the blinders on for the people in your business. And you say, mm-hmm. okay, I need a director of finance. Who's that mm-hmm. going to be? And you find that, hey, like, there's people under the director of finance that can fit into the boxes below that person, but I don't have a director of finance. Just because mm-hmm. John's always overseeing the books and going to talk to the accountant, he's not the right guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I went about going through my pretty much my entire management team and replacing mm. them with the right people in the right seats. And they went wow. about working on their groups to create the to bring in the right people in the right seats. And we essentially mm-hmm. what we call is like hire, fire, train, motivate, and reward everyone based on our core values. And mm-hmm. and the but. The one thing that I had learned over the years, even up to the last, in the last five years or so was, and people say, that's obvious. Everybody knows that, right? Was that it's the people that will make or break your business. And the, and like I said, like even myself, I'm like, oh, I know that. And then I'd hire shitty people, right? I'm like, okay, (laughs) like slap, like, why did I do that? Because you sometimes you're rushing or you're this or you're that, or you're no good at it. You suck at doing interviews, and 
But over time, you realize, and once you actually acquire some good people, then you become hyper committed to that process of hiring Mm -hmm. good people because you know what good Mm -hmm. people can be. Because Mm -hmm. all good people are free in a sense, right? Because they pay for themselves and then some. It's the shitty Mm -hmm. people that cost you money, right? I once had a salesman say to me, oh, you can't afford me. And I said, I don't need to afford you. And I go, you're free. And he said, what are you talking about? Oh, blah, blah. I can't remember what he said. It was a long time ago. And, this, and mm-hmm. I said, if you're any good, you're going to sell enough to pay for yourself and a few other people in the building too. I don't have to pay for you. Mm-hmm. You pay for yourself. And uh, yeah. And so it's the crappy people that cost you money. Mm-hmm. The good ones are free. Right. And, uh, yeah. and and the other thing is that if you're appealing or talking to entrepreneurs or whatever, like entrepreneurs want to be the boss, right? Like they want to be in yeah. charge, right? The best job as an entrepreneur is when the, all the seats have the right people in them and you're not one of them in any of the seats mm-hmm. and that you're the integrator or the visionary of the business, which is one of the terms mm-hmm. in the COS where you have the right guy in sales or girl, whatever, the right person in finance, operations, marketing, IT, what have you. And if every one of those people reporting to you is doing the perfect job, then you don't have to Mm. do anything. You just need Mm. to handle big Mm. deals, big decisions, be their leader, help them when they're Mm. decision-making every day, right? And and that's it. And so you shouldn't Mm. be doing a lot of, oh, I got to work 12-hour days. If you're doing that, then you're doing something wrong. And uh, yeah. 100%. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to know all the answers, but you hire the best people. I kind of want to go into your book, Never See the Lobby. What is a common misconception about sales? Yeah, so most most people when they think about sales, or at least back in the day, maybe not so much now, I'm not sure, but is that that if you bump into a salesman, you're going to end up buying insurance or or encyclopedias, right? (laughs) Yep, yep, or cars. (laughs) Yeah, you just took the words out of my mouth, right? Or cars. And, and that it's, uh, it's going to be a painful process mm. and you're going to come away abused in some way or taken advantage mm-hmm. of and that you have to protect 100%. yourself, right? Mm-hmm. When really the salesperson is in a lot of ways, it's your best advocate for getting, getting the best product and you're performing a vital and valuable service for all aspects of the business. Nothing in any business happens until something gets sold. So many people you bump into, you're having coffee with your friends and whatever. I want to start a business. I want to start a business. And it's, oh, I know this widget, or I've got this software idea, or I've got this, or I've got that. or And I always ask them the same thing. I said, who's your customer? Who are you going to sell it to? Do you have Mm -hmm. your first order? And so most businesses are started on getting your first order that you didn't deserve. And uh, yeah, and exactly. And and you have to earn them after that, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And so what there's no in when would it have been probably in the late 80s? Yeah, mm. it was. Yeah, I think. It, no, it was after I started. Anyways, it was in the 90s. This guy approached me, he said, Oh, I have this great idea for a business. He said, the company, our company sells computers. And we get back these skids of computers from the customers like the Board of Education and we can fix them up and resell these computers and make a fortune. And I'm like, who's going to buy them, right? Who the hell wants to buy a, back in the day, it was like a IBM 286. Then it became a 386 then a 486 then a Pentium. And and this guy was talking about 286s and the customers were putting in 486s or Pentiums. I'm like, nobody wants your shitty skids of computers, dude. 
And the other thing that was funny about that story was that I'll never forget was he's like, we should be partners and, but I'm going to need three weeks vacation and a company car. And I'm like, are you starting a business or are you applying for a job? And, uh, but the point was that he didn't have any customers. There was no, he didn't know where he would sell it. And so he thought he was going to go and buy these skids of computers and they would somehow magically sell themselves. And so the misconception is about sales is the most vital thing to any and every business. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it doesn't have to be a painful process for the customer, the client or yourself, the salesperson. Right. I feel like, I feel like a challenge though, is the trust side. If I'm a customer and you're trying to sell me something, I'm like, I don't know. Is my interest what you want to try to achieve? Do you care about selling the product to me or do you actually care about trying to solve my problem? And I think it really comes to how salespeople are being remunerated, right? By selling a product. Right. So I'm like, clearly you are doing this to get money, to get commission yeah. for yourself. I'm curious to hear what you think though. So sure. like, for example, like Tesla product makers, they are remunerated not based on the number of cars they sell, but on the best product available. So they don't really care. They're going to sell it to you if you were a Tesla person who does really care about electronic vehicles, all these things, then I'm going to sell it to you. If not, then I don't care because whether or not you buy it from me, it doesn't matter. So it's more on, I'm here to solve a problem that you have. Yeah. While most salespeople out there are not remunerated that way. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Okay. So number one, no offense, but a sales successful salesperson is not a salesperson. It's more like a customer service representative because they're on 100% salary, I think, is, mm-hmm. if memory serves mm-hmm. me correctly. So I'm going to flip it around on you to give you the answer that I think you're looking for, but it might come at you from mm. a different angle, okay? Because you're saying salespeople are going to do it because they got to sell the product in order to get paid and and those kind of things. And those are the natural ways to think about it. And and it, it, those are it's true, right? But you're asking me, like, as a salesperson, like, how does how do I reconcile that? And the so the first thing is that the and I, I'm going to actually start at, with this story. So I had a customer who said oh, they had a corporate contract with my competitor, and mm-hmm. the they basically said something along the lines of, "We love dealing with you so much that you get every piece of business that we don't have to contractually give to the other company." Ooh, they had right. a corporate contract to sell these commodities that we sold the same products and they just had to buy. And there were there's good stories in the book about that situation and how I designed special products for them. And the other companies stole the ideas and they still bought them from that company. But, and, but the thing is that, so one thing is that I, my, my mantra is to how to get act, stay in front of the customer and be a pleasure to do business with always. That's the mm-hmm. mantra that I follow, right? How to get in front of the customer, how to stay in front of the customer, how to act in front of the customer, right? And how mm-hmm. to be a pleasure to do business with always, right? Not when you're mm-hmm. getting the order, but always. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's about establishing these relationships that go past whether I do or don't get the deal. Right. And of course, and I don't want to kid you like, Oh, he's out golfing with everyone. Like, believe me, I don't even golf. I don't even own a good pair of golf clubs. It's not, that's not what I mean. When I'm with them, I'm a pleasure to be with, but it's not like I'm taking them out golfing on the weekends when they're not buying from me. I don't even take the people that buy from me out for golfing, but I am always a pleasure to be around when I'm with my customers and they're never, they never feel worse for the wear, even when they can't give me the order. So then the second part is what if you're not getting the business, right? And that's how I govern my day and my val- my perceived value. So there's rules that I follow, right? 
rule number one is that if you're number three or number four in the business, you're working for the wrong company and you need to quit your job and get a new job, right? You could pick any industry you want. Let's just say, let's just say it's HRIS software, human resources, information system software, right? It's very popular these days. Everybody's installing them and there's many companies out there that sell them, right? And let's say you're working for a company and the they sell HRIS software and you're one of their account reps and you go and you got to go and you got to figure out on the internet, where do we rank? We're number four, quit. That's your mm. next job is to quit. You need mm. to be working for the number one or the number two brand of whatever the heck it is you're selling or you're not valuing your own time because 80% of the business will go to the number one and 80% mm. of the 20% that's left will go to the number two. And then 80% of the four, what's left goes to three. And so you're battling for 1% of the pie as number four, right? Mm. And so that's the first thing is that if you're not selling a top brand, quit and go and sell the top brand because mm. your time, you cannot re- reproduce your time. And so if you're mm. a good quality salesperson, your job is to represent the brand and solve problems for your customer. And your customer doesn't want the crappy brand. They want mm. the good brand. So go work for them right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and the second thing is that the other rule is I'd rather be last than second, okay? So this is the way I approach every deal. So I go into the deal a thousand percent on point with the customer, right? And I present it in all its best light, whichever that would be with all my tricks and techniques that I use and they're all in the book, right? But the moment I realize I'm not getting the order, I recuse myself from all efforts and I expend no further efforts on that customer. So let's say... Yeah. Let's say that the we're selling an instrument or whatever. Like I sell high tech equipment, right? So I'm I always talk mm-hmm. in the, kind of that language, but electronic mm-hmm. things, wireless solutions, technology products, and but let's say we're both they're both looking at these two instruments, brand A and my brand, and they need to look at them both physically, right? And let's say that I know they've already looked at the one, and I dropping off mine for a demo. And one of the customers says something to me and regardless of what it is, I know that they're going to need to, or will be buying the other brand. Mm -hmm. Then obviously I'm not going to pull the demo right on the spot because that would be rude. But what I would Mm -hmm. do is I'd say, look, this one's tied up. I can only leave it for three days. I'm going to be back on Thursday and I need to pick Mm -hmm. it up. So hopefully you can Mm -hmm. get enough time with it by then because I know they're not going to buy it anyways. And so Mm -hmm. I drop it, I leave, I come back and get it. And I never worry about that deal again. And I go to my next deal. Because if I'm second and I fly in engineers from the factory and I do a bug pony show and I take them out for fancy wine and cheese and dinners and things like that and then take them golfing on the weekend because I want to get the deal, but I already know that I'm not getting the deal, then every mm. minute, every second that I waste trying to convince the customer, I'm, I need to go and find the customer that he's not focusing on because the person that's wrapped up selling whatever to that customer is distracted. And so I go to the customer that they're avo- that they're ignoring, and then I over-service them, and that's and then I get their business, right? And and again, there's lots of stories in the book about this. How I would go around the technology pockets, and I would sell to all the companies around the biggest companies because the smaller companies were ignored by these big technology providers because they were getting millions of dollars of business from the bigger companies, and so the right. salesmen refused to call on the small companies. So they couldn't even get a quote. They couldn't get someone to answer the phone or whatever. So after I'd go and visit the big companies, and sometimes I realized I wasn't getting the order, then I would stop at all the small companies around those big companies. And they're like, we're so happy that you always drop in to see us. And I would get all their business. How would you know, though, 
that you are not one step away from that hustle versus you quitting early? Obviously, it's a really good question, but <laughs> the the thing is that usually you just know, like you just do know. And because, for instance, let's say you walk in and uh, there's nine there's nine other models of the same brand that you're competing against, and they need a tenth unit. It's like, why mm. am I here? Clearly, they're not going to replace all nine. They only need one more. They're, they probably need mm. a quote for purchasing and the corporate mandates to get multiple quotes or to do their due diligence so they can go and buy another one of the nine things that they've already bought, right? There's that kind of a situation. There might be like a disparity where you're, they need to buy a Mazda and you sell Mercedes and they're not going to, yeah. you can get an SUV mm-hmm. that costs $60,000 with all the bells and whistles from Mazda, or you can get the same one from Mercedes, but it's 100K. And so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, if the guy doesn't have the money, the moment you realize that you need to recuse yourself or vice versa, the guy, Hey, he wants to be brand conscious. He wants to wear that. He wants a Louis Vuitton handbag. And, and so there's no point in trying to sell him a Michael Kors because it's just not good enough. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And so mm -hmm. it takes some intuition and what have you. And I'm not saying just say, are you buying it? No. And then walk out. But the point is where people make a big mistake is over compensating for when they're lose, starting to lose. You feel you're losing, and so you amp mm. up, right? That's when you start mm. to get offensive and when you say things that maybe you might want not want to say. And, and like I said, there's lots of customers out there that need lots of service, and focusing on a, wi- a losing deal is a bad use of your time. I think, well, I'm, again, I'm curious to hear what you think as well, because before I was a business development manager for three years. Yeah. So B2B sales, totally understand that world. I think my perception of sales changed a lot because I initially thought of the standard car salesman that they'll sell me a car even if I want right. a bike. Yeah. But being on the other end of it, it's really more of I'm here to try to solve your problem. In that instance, though, there, there'd be times where I'd actually be pitching a product and literally, we would have eight other products, eight other sales rep there too. And you're standing there and I'm literally having that exact same thought of what am I doing here? Right. And one thing that someone told me was you just got to keep going. But the thing is, they'll actually, maybe all the products are really good, but they'll buy from someone who they like. Yeah. And initially, I'm like, really? But over time, you really do win business if they really do like you. And so going back to what you said about being a pleasure to be around with all these things, it goes above and beyond. You could have somewhat not a bad product, but like a pretty good product versus an excellent product, but a terrible sales rep. They'll go with the better sales rep. They will, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, the, like I told you, like customers would say to me, like, we like you the best, but we just can't mm-hmm. buy your product for X, Y, or Z reason. Mm-hmm. Even my competitors mm-hmm. like me because I'm so focused on the relationship and being around, being a pleasure to be around. I don't want to be like a pain in the ass to my competitor. And, oh, don't walk through. I don't want to stand in the lobby when you're in the lobby and that kind of a thing. Yeah. And so when I walk around trade shows and things like that, all my competitors are always happy and more than happy to say hello to me. They're not going to invite me in their booth and show me their best product, but they're yeah. always cordial and nice. And I, when I, when I know where the boundaries of good taste are and everything that I do, and they never feel threatened or like, they know I'm not going to say, oh, how much are you selling this week? <laughs> because it's just, yeah, that's yeah. not appropriate. And so the the customers will recognize it and and they will buy from people they like all things all other things being equal right and but yeah, when you are course. faced with eight different 
God for heaven forbid, right? If you were faced with eight people presenting mm -hmm. a similar product or solution, then it comes down to yeah. how you present yourself and your solution, right? And so mm -hmm. on my website, there's a thing called the punch, perfect pitch and close, which is how you win at the game of presenting, right? How you present products and, and can, you know, yeah. Can you ex yeah elaborate on that? The, yeah. the It's called the punch, perfect pitch and close. It's three things. First thing right. you do is punch mm -hmm. them. Then you give them mm. a perfect pitch and then you close, right? And so basically a punch is that most people like they have a bad start to their presentation, right? And they almost always, they whip out PowerPoint or something like that. And then there's a company overview with how many people and that we were founded in 2007 and we've got divisions <laughs> around the world. I'm already asleep if I'm the customer, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, what I do is I try to punch them with either a loud sound song or video or some kind of a fact or something that will knock them out of their state that they're in. Right. And the, it doesn't really matter what, you know, you're presenting, but like the best thing is when you can present, like, for instance, instead of starting with PowerPoint, you start with a video and the video starts with a loud sound. Like it doesn't have to be a bang, but like musical, a musical entrance to that, which starts and startles them and it's, and it's pleasurable and it captures their attention. Mm. And then you play a short video clip of your product doing exactly what they need it to do in a way mm. that is can only be referred to as I refer to it in the book as being attractive because attraction is not a choice. And, mm. and I go on a lot on that in the book as well is that the things that are attractive don't need to tell you that they're attractive. They're attractive, right? You see a mm. handsome or a pretty girl or man or whatever, right? Hey, that guy's good looking. Hey, that girl's mm. good looking. Like you can tell. And regardless of your situation or whatever, whether you acknowledge it in out loud or quietly, you're going to say, oh my, look at how handsome he is or something like that, right? And so you need to make your product look handsome or pretty. It's mm. capture their attention. Then the perfect pitch is the using the power of three, which I talk about in my book, is that and first you tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them what you told them. That's a power of three, right? During the presentation, you present it in a, over a course of three things, right? You don't present four things about it, but you craft your presentation around a series of threes, right? And, and then so then you do that. Then, of course, you tell them what you told them. And then when you get to the close, and close is typically... The a lot of times it's also can I have your pen, your order and you hand them a pen kind of a thing, but that's not the typically the proper close. The proper close is what when you've done the first two parts correctly, they say how much is it and when can I buy it and how do I get it, uh, right? And that mm -hmm. and you help them to buy it, right? And you help them to move to the next stage. Oh, if we were more interested in or how about how do we talk about price or whatever, then you know you then you start working on closing them. If not, you might have to offer them a, a kind of closing statement, but it really depends on what you're selling on. I could give you all sorts of closing mm. lines, but it might not be appropriate for what you're selling. If you're selling right, coffins right. or something, it's like, where do I <laughs> sign you up for a box to put your dead people in? But yeah. there are lots of, there are lots of interesting lines and things that you mm. can use. But that presentation is really a key and most people blow it. They're awful mm. at it. And as I told you in the mm. last time, it's how do you get good at presenting all those products you sell? Cause there's so many of them, right? And I yeah. said, that's where I used that greed-based learning, right? Where I only yeah. learn products when I have a greedy need to, to sell them the next day. And then I don't mm. need to, then it becomes effortless. I don't have to, I don't have to expend any energy. I just learn it naturally because of this tie-in between like I'm getting something from it and I need to learn about it. 
And yeah, and so I, gave, I think I gave you the example of a car, right? I The only time I ever learn about cars is the every four years when I get a new car, right? Yeah, and then yeah. I probably forget yeah. about all of it for another four years, and then I become an expert again on whatever mm-hmm, the cars mm-hmm. of the moment are, right? And that holds true for for everything, right? And mm-hmm. another perfect example how greed-based learning works incredibly is in the world of cryptocurrency and anyone that mm-hmm. ever gets involved in crypto. And of course, right now we're in the, a crypto winter, so it's like crypto's down right now. But there were like so many people that were expert on crypto back in mm-hmm. 2020, 2019, 2020, whatever. Before. And, and it's like, how in the world did all these people get so geeked out and learn so much about crypto? We all know why, because they thought they were going to become multimillionaires or whatever. And yeah. the lately there's been some rumblings and stuff in that little space. And I even find myself absorbing facts again right now after two years and i'm like stop it (laughs) stop doing that and uh, because you can get you can go down rabbit holes and stuff as well Mm -hmm. but that's how i learn about the products that i present so that i can present them properly so that i can in a nice way and Mm -hmm. always be a pleasure and get the business right that's what i do yeah There, I have so many points to, to catch on there. For, for listeners who miss it, it's called Greed-Based Learning. It's in, in your book. But one, one of the things that I wanted to add on was read the attraction. I think I would add on attraction to that person. So very subjective. But that's exactly what you meant as in you're trying to solve their problem. So for example, in consulting too, oftentimes people are so quick to just go directly to the solution right. instead of spending time for the problem. What is your problem? Right. And I think with sales too, if you just try to sell to everybody, you will sell to nobody, yeah. right? So spending time, getting to know your customer, what is your problem? That's your problem? Great, I've got a solution for you to tackle exactly that problem. So when you have that video that clearly solves my problem, of course, I'll buy from you. And I think people forget that, that you have to tailor your message according to who you're selling to. Yeah. So for your listeners, there's a good trick that you can use when you're in discussions with people. You have to, it has to be in the right setting in order for you to do this, but sometimes you'll be thankful for this if you can remember it, which is called, it's called watch your weekend problem and not what's your, but watch your weekend Mm -hmm. problem. And it's a, again, the power of three, right? It's three things. The first thing is that you notice their watch or their bracelet. You say, oh my, that's such a nice watch. That Where did you get that? What's the story behind that? Or was, oh, is that a Cartier? And uh, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> but who'd you give it to that? Oh, my boyfriend gave it to me. Oh, that's so nice. And right. and the moment you do that, like their demeanor changes completely, right? It just, something dissolves mm. in them. And you talk about, the, oh, I love watches. I love jewelry. I love this. I love that. And if maybe it's a brooch, maybe, obviously you have to see, they have to be wearing something. And yeah. the watch thing, a lot of times, especially if you're selling to men, they, a lot of guys wear a watch and it's a status mm. symbol. And they're very happy to tell you about the background of the watch, right? So you start mm-hmm. with the watch, nice watch. What's the story behind the watch? And just leave it at that, right? And I said, oh, really? Oh, yeah. So when you're not at work, like on the weekend, what do you do? What do you do on the weekend when you're not working? And and there's a good story in there about don't do that. Don't guess what they do on the weekend. I won't, I won't waste time now, but it's a story about how I guessed wrong about what the guy did for the weekend. I made an assumption and I alienated right. him. And, uh, mm. But nonetheless, he, so he says, oh, I play pickleball, I fish, I bike, I this, I that. And then <clears throat> you talk to them about that and you make appropriate 
non-pandering statements, right? If he talks about cycling and you're not a cyclist, then don't BS them, but just, oh, I, you know, I've always been amazed by cyclists. I've never, how do you do 50 kilometers in a morning? And oh, oh, where do you get the motivation for all that or whatever, right? Or if you are into it, you can relate on different, a different way, right? Because you're, you'll be knowledgeable. Mm. And then when, so now you've gotten the watch, you've done the weekend, right? And then you say, you know what? So when you're back at work on Monday, what's the biggest problem that you're trying to solve right now? What keeps you up at night? What keeps your company up at night? And what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Mm. And that's where if you've done it, they're going to tell you their real problem that they are trying to solve, right? Yep. And oh, it could be anything, right? It could be like, oh, we can't find good people. You Mm. don't sell people, so that doesn't help you. But Or it's like, we can't increase our production throughput, right? We just can't get our production levels Mm. up to meet the demand. There's just more Mm. demand that we can keep up with. Oh, I just Mm. happen to sell gizmos that speed up production lines. Of course, you don't say Mm. that at that moment. You're building the facts so that you can punch Mm. perfect pitch and close them later, right? Yeah. So when you show them the video, you don't show them the video of the corporate building or anything like that with the drone shot of their factory. You show the production line spewing out products at 10 times faster than mm. theirs does it. Right. And show them what, don't say it, but you show, show it because that's yeah, an action. Exactly. Sorry, continue. And again, when you do that, attraction is not a choice. They become attracted mm. and they can't mm. contain themselves because, yeah. And, I love that. Yeah. And again, it's all, and again, a lot of this is all a numbers game, but one of the more important ones is the one about don't waste your time selling crappy brands. That's where people Mm. just do themselves a disservice. Maybe you need to get in the door, get a little bit of experience, but the moment you can't trade up to a better firm with a better product, always sell the top brand. Um, Always. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to end it with one final question. What are your top three key points of your book? So the one thing I always tell, if it doesn't come up in the discussion that I always like to say is you only get forever to make another impression. So make a good one. So essentially most people are like, that's not what my mom taught me. My mom taught me (laughs) make a good first impression. And I'm like, that's exactly right. And I want you to treat every impression like it was the first one. Don't be polite on the first day and then be a jerk. Right. But really the story is about getting ahead in your career. And especially Mm. if you work in an office or whatever, where you can game the system politically. And so essentially every time anyone that could ever have an impact on your career walks by you within 10 feet of your periphery, you want to be the best employee that they've ever seen. Everything you do, Mm. you have to be the best. Don't be on Instagram and just flip over to the CRM when they walk by. Mm. Right. Because they'll see that once, then they'll see it a second time. And guess what? You're lazy and you're a loser. <laughs> and and there's right. nothing right. you could do to change that impression. So mm-hmm. don't do it. Mm-hmm. Just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, because you can't change those impressions. And whether you liked it or not, you're always making an impression. So always try to make a good impression, no matter mm-hmm. what. Always be right. polite to everybody, always be kind to everyone at work. Not in a phony kind of a way. It has to be genuine. You have to be, but these things matter and they matter a lot, right? And so that's the one thing. One of the stories I like to tell is $10 million in diamonds, right? Which, which is the guy that I worked in a jewelry store when I was, when I was younger and it was in a department store. And then the guy quit the, my boss quit and he started his own jewelry store. And 10 years later, I went back to Niagara Falls where I grew up and I saw his store was there. And I thought, oh my God, I should go ahead and see if he remembers me, right? And 
I said, when I went in the front door and I said, oh, is Romeo there? And he's always in the back. And he came out, he's this Italian guy and he was a little older than me. And, but he was raised in the, he had polio basically when he was a kid. And so he was afflicted and he wasn't really in a wheelchair, but he needed a special car and he walked with crutches at times and things like that. And he was very afflicted and but he was like this crazy ladies man. He was always on dates and things. And he just lived a this huge life, right? And, and so I said to him, Oh, how's business? And he said, Oh, it's amazing. And he said, I mean, he's so it could be so much better. He said, I could be making a ten million dollars of selling the diamonds, but I'm so busy fixing all the watches, right? And I'm like, uh, Why are you fixing watches? Why don't you hire a watchmaker and sell the diamonds? But he was a watchmaker. Yeah. And so he literally didn't even know what he was saying to me, but it changed my life, right? I'm so busy fixing, the, yeah, I'm too busy selling, fixing watches to sell $10 million of diamonds, right? And, yeah. uh, and so we have that saying around here, we just say $10 million in diamonds. That's, mm. And that just means you're wasting time on things that somebody else could be better doing and left, you're just mm. being busy work because you're not doing the right, you're not doing the next right thing, right? Yeah. And yeah, and I guess the, the third thing, there's so many things from the book or whatever, but is the the titles never sit in the lobby. So that would be silly if I told you that, but don't sit down in the lobby, stand up and wait for your party. But the other part of one of the other part of it is the never forget a face, right? So if you're going to a customer for the second time and people in that business and they know you, then before you go back mm-hmm. in the business, do what I call re-remembering their face, Right. So you Mm. go into your phone or into your laptop and you go to each person in that business and you re-remember their face. And if you need to go to LinkedIn and check out their face, so you remember it. Because one of the other rules Mm. is always ask for a mini tour whenever you're in a building so that you can look around and see what's happening. And when you're walking around the building with your client, you're going to see those people that you know, and they're going to say, hey, Glenn, and I'm going to go, oh, wait a minute. And they're going to know I forgot their name. And I never want that to happen. Because I'm always mm. trying to make another good impression. So I, mm. I take the time to remember them before I get there. And uh, yeah, and it makes Ooh, a huge like difference. That. Oh my God, that guy remembered my name. I haven't seen him for two years. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it works. It does work. And uh, it happens all the time, even for me. But they love it even more if you remember specific details. Like, yeah. Oh, I've got a kid. How's your vacation right. in Napa or yeah. whatever? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, thank you yeah. for, yeah, such a great conversation. This has been incredible. I know we have so many other rabbit holes to yeah. even go into. So thank you yeah. for a great chat. Oh, my pleasure. So happy to be here. Happy to come back anytime, too. That concludes this week's episode. You can reach out to the speakers on their LinkedIn. All the links are in the description. If you like what you hear, feel free to download the episode, follow, or leave a review. We'll be back next week exploring a new industry. I'm Jacintha. Be sure to tune in. And as always, thank you for listening.